We are going to be in Acts chapter 17 again today. We're going to be in Acts 17, 16 through 34. To give you a little bit of context, last week, remember we left Paul waiting in Athens, waiting for Silas and waiting for Timothy who were going to meet him. They were back in Thessalonica and he was there in Athens waiting. In Athens, just so you know this, the Roman Empire took over the Greek Empire and then they expanded it. And Athens, even though Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, <clears throat> excuse me, Athens was the, the cultural and intellectual capital of the Roman Empire. So it, it was filled with uh, art and architecture and, and intellectuals, and it had tons of tourism. Tons of people there were tourists. But Paul wasn't there as a tourist to see the sites, all the art and architecture. Paul was there to share the gospel. He was there as an evangelist. And so that's what we're going to see him doing today in today's passage. And I want to start out just by, by recapping. I saw a study that the Pew Research Center did back in 2017. So I know it feels like ancient history, 2017, uh, but, but this was just five years ago, really just four and a half years ago that they did this study. And basically what the Pew Research Center found was they were studying religious beliefs among Americans. They found that one third, 33% straight up, of U.S. adults believed in a higher power of some kind, but not in God as described in the Bible. Now, the majority of people that believed in a higher power of some kind believed in God as described in the Bible, but one-third of U.S. adults five years ago said that they did believe in some sort of higher power, but not the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible. And, and I think many, I don't think, this is played out in the statistics, but many of those Americans would describe themselves as agnostics. I have lots of friends who describe themselves as agnostics, neighbors, people I've worked with. Um, and that literally means without knowledge. That's from the Greek meaning without knowledge or unknowable. That's what agnostic means. And there's, there's really different flavors of agnosticism. There are hard agnostics, what you might call philosophical agnostics, who, who quite literally believe that that none of us can know if this one true God, if the God of Scripture exists. None of us can really know if God exists, and so that's it. You can't know, I can't know, we can't know. That's hard agnosticism. But that's not most, most people aren't philosophical agnostics. Most people are what, what some have called soft agnostics, which is just, a, it's a more openness to looking at the evidence, to seeing the evidence. Even if you don't know what that evidence is, you're open to receiving evidence as to the existence of God. You're hovering in between, in between belief in God and disbelief. And that's where a lot of people find themselves today. And honestly, things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. I know a lot has changed, but when it boils down to it, people's basic struggles, assumptions, beliefs, ideas, philosophies haven't really changed much in two millennia. Um, Paul was speaking to ancient Athenians in today's passage in much the same way that we would talk and that I have talked to agnostic neighbors and friends. We've had very similar discussions as we're going to see Paul using today. And, and this is one of the reasons why today's passage, the second half of chapter 17, has received so much attention over the centuries. Guys, this section, the second part we're going to look at today especially, has been the most studied verses in, in the entire book of Acts over the centuries. And it's because things don't really change much over the centuries in terms of these things. And so this is Paul's longest recorded speech. Y'all remember back in Acts 14, 
he was, uh, in, he was around um, more rural pagans. Remember they thought it was that uh, he and uh, Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. Remember this? And they wanted to sacrifice animals to him and stuff. So you get a snippet. You get kind of the seed bed of these same ideas that Paul's going to talk about today, but he gets cut off pretty quick in that. In this passage, we get to really see Paul as he leans in to speaking to non-believing Gentiles, okay? And it's his longest speech to unbelieving Gentiles. And, and, and Luke includes it in the book of Acts, because remember, Luke, the inspired author, is making decisions on what to include and what not to include. He includes it because it emphasizes today's big idea for our sermon, which is that God is in fact knowable, and it's our mission as Christ followers to make God known. Now, I don't mean that we open up people's hearts and we open up people's minds and we make people believe in God. What I'm saying is we're called to be witnesses. We're we're called to testify to the truth of God's word, to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the first part of our passage emphasizes the first part of that big idea that our Christian mission is to make God known. Or I should say the second part of that big idea. Our Christian mission is to make God known as his witnesses. And the second part uh, of our passage today emphasizes our Christian message. So if we're going to make God known, what is the content of that message that we're sharing? And the content is the fact that God is in fact knowable in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's that's what we're going to look at today. So first, our Christian mission is to make God known. It's not to build church buildings. It's not to, you know, do nice things for people necessarily. All of that's wrapped up into our main purpose, which is to, to be witnesses for Christ and to make God known through the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again, and that, that God is offering us forgiveness, a reconciled relationship with our creator, and eternal life. That's the gospel, right? And, and so we're going to do a lot of other things in the context of that, but that's our main purpose. That's our mission, to make God known in that way. And again, that's exactly what Paul is doing in Athens. To make the one true God known, the first thing he was doing is spotting false gods. So if our cup is filled with false worship, we've got to empty that out to put in true worship. If we have false ideas about God, we have to pour that out so that we can take in and receive and believe in true ideas about God. And so first he's spotting false gods, and then we're going to look at him speaking God's truth. So to make God known, we must spot the false gods in our culture and in our lives. Wherever God is unknown, just think about this, wherever people struggle to know God or, or, or have a, an ignorance of God, people are created to worship. You and I, every single person you've ever met on this earth, in this life, was created to worship. There's a God-shaped hole in our soul that can only be filled by God. And when we don't know God, we're still going to feel that emptiness, that void, right? You can characterize it a million different ways, but this is what we hear people say. The, 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 the sadness, the emptiness, the purposelessness, the ultimate meaninglessness, all these things boil down to we don't know God as we should. And so if we have this big gaping hole in our soul, it hurts. It, it throbs, and we're going to fill it with something. And so wherever God is unknown, people will always make false gods to fill the void in their lives. It won't always sound religious and spiritual, Sometimes it'll sound very practical, you know, Uh, but everyone's going to have false gods. We just need to spot those. 
And identifying those false gods, and this is true of all of us, but certainly true in your conversations with people that, that aren't followers of Christ, identifying these false gods is one of the best ways to introduce people to the one true God. Because when you really get it out on the table and, and look at it with somebody and go, this is what you're worshiping. And they go, that's what I'm worshiping, right? If there's a level of honesty there to admit that, then they're going to realize that thing can't give me true joy. That, that thing or that person or that job or that relationship, whatever it is, that can't fulfill me. That can't give me eternal life. That can't take away my guilt and shame. And so that's one of the best ways to share the one true God is just identifying those. In verse 16, our very first verse, we see how false gods motivated Paul's evangelism. It says, uh, Luke writes, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. Guys, Athens was world-renowned for idols. I mean, the, the Acropolis and the Agora and the Areopagus, which is the Mars Hill that we're going to be talking about today, uh, Paul is in these places and they are filled with statues and blocks representing different gods and, and uh, men from Greek mythology fashioned into godlike statues that people worshipped. And there's just, it was filled with idols. And he's walking around waiting for Silas and Timothy going, man, this is an idolatrous place, right? And it wasn't a surprise to him, but he got to see it firsthand. And that Greek word translated as being provoked. See, I think sometimes we see false worship we act like we don't do it as Christians, which we do, by the way. Um, go back and read the story of God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament, right? We have that same proclivity. That's that sin nature we wrestle with, even as, even as believers. But, but certainly, uh, we see sometimes people worshiping false gods, and we either, uh, you know, do the holier-than-thou, kind of look down our nose at people, or we mock them for, that's so ridiculous that you would worship that, that you try and fill your life with that. Or we just get angry at all the idolatry and we just get, we become grumpy Christians who just want to go into our little holy huddles and, and stay away from this, you know, world that we're grumpy about. Guys, Paul was being provoked and that's an intense term and it conveys a sense of righteous anger. He was infuriated as he watched all this false worship of these false gods. But why was he infuriated? He was infuriated because he saw how this false worship, how these false gods were distracting people from the one true God who actually created them and deserved their worship. He was infuriated by how those false gods were leading people astray to destruction. And he was compelled out of love for these people. Even people that mocked him for his beliefs, he was compelled out of love to help them. Maybe, just maybe, find the one true God and have a reconciled relationship with their creator. But he was being provoked in that way. He was disturbed. He was infuriated. But folks, his diagnosis of the spiritual condition of these people, that they were highly idolatrous, it only made him more eager to share the cure. He saw the sickness. He saw the spiritual cancer everywhere around him. He saw the emptiness and the longing for something real to clamp down on. And it, it compelled him to share the cure. And that cure was to introduce them to their actual creator. To introduce them to God. So to make God known, we must speak God's truth. Guys, we don't get to make up our own ideas about God. That's what all the false gods were. Oh, I want to make a God that represents this and looks like this and stands for that. And, and, and that, we do that too. 
We even say sometimes we make up a false god and we kind of pattern that false god after the God of the Bible, but it's not. It's not the God of the Bible. So we, we sometimes dupe people into believing that we're holding up the God of the Bible, and in reality, we've just crafted another false god for ourselves because it's not based on God's truth. So if we're going to make God known, we have to make God known according to how he's revealed himself. And how has he revealed himself? Yes, he's revealed himself to us through nature, creation. We can get a good sense of God's wisdom, his power, his majesty, his might, just by looking out at the field of stars at night. But he's given us special revelation in the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, through the law and the prophets, through Moses and the prophets. And then ultimately with the promise that God gave to his people Israel and through Israel. But then we also have the fulfillment of that promise in the personal work of Jesus Christ in the apostolic writings, the New Testament. And then ultimately, the fullness of God is revealed to us in the person of Christ himself. But how do we learn about Christ? It's through God's word. So we have to speak God's truth, specifically the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ, who, folks, provides the only way for us to be reconciled to God. And that's what Paul says. He's like, if there's some other way to be reconciled to God, why did he send his one and only begotten son to die this horrific death, to come down to earth in the first place, right? There's no other way than for the perfect spotless lamb to be sacrificed on our behalf, to pay for our sins, to take our unrighteousness on on himself, our guilt, our our sin, our shame, and to die for it, and then to be resurrected to new life, so that we could be given his righteousness, his perfect record, his spotless record in the eyes of God, so that we could be made holy and filled with his Holy Spirit. And that's what the person work, uh, and, and there's no other way. I mean, we're called wayside because John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am not a way, I am the way. He says, there's no other way to come to the Father but through me, okay? And I know that's not popular in our syncretistic, pluralistic society, You know, that's not inclusive enough. That's exclusive. Well, it is exclusive because there's no other way to be made right with God. You can't do enough good stuff. You can't not do enough bad stuff, right? We have to be perfectly holy to be in God's presence, to be reconciled to our holy creator. And that can only happen through the work of Christ. Uh, In verses 17 through 21, Paul proclaims this good news to all sorts of different Athenians. He comes in, he just never pays any attention to social barriers, right? He just comes in and shares the gospel with everybody from the highest in social status to the lowest, okay? And so he's sharing the gospel with all sorts of people. In verse 17 at the beginning, Paul's in the synagogue. Paul is a Jewish man. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees or was a Pharisee of Pharisees trained under a rabbi named Gamaliel. I mean, he knew the Hebrew scriptures backwards and forwards And he himself was an ethnic Jew, and he had a deep desire, just like what happened with him, to show from the Hebrew scriptures that Messiah was coming and that he had to first die and resurrect before he came and ruled as conquering king and judge. He he saw that in the Hebrew scriptures, and so the first place he went when he went to a city, if there was a synagogue, he went to that synagogue and spoke to his fellow Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles. These were Gentiles that were paying attention to the law and the prophets, to the Jewish beliefs and writings, and they were inclined to monotheism, to worship this one true God of Israel. And that's who he's talking to in verse 17. And he was reasoning from the Hebrew scriptures, again, that Jesus was the Messiah. In verse 17, we also see Paul reasoning with pagans in the marketplace. 
And folks, he would not have used the Hebrew Scriptures. They had no clue what the Hebrew Scriptures said. They weren't raised memorizing the Law and the Prophets. He went into the marketplace where average Joe folks were in, they're, they're making tents and selling fruit and, and selling meat. And I mean, they were just working. And he went and shared with them, not from the Hebrew Scriptures, although that was always in the backdrop because he knew that was truth, but he was, he was using his understanding of Greco-Roman customs and values and such to make bridges into their lives, into their everyday experiences to share the gospel. He was highly adaptable in that way. Um, and then we get to the main group here in our passage. So in verses 18 to 21, Paul draws the attention of the local intellectual class. Okay, Athens, again, the capital of intellectualism and philosophical debate in the Roman Empire. And so Paul's out there talking to people in the marketplace and the synagogues, and lo and behold, the philosophers get wind of it, and they come and they invite uh, Paul to their little philosophical meeting. I say little, it's a, it's a famous group called the Areopagus, which uh, that comes from the Roman god uh, of war, whose name in uh, Greek was Ares, and Areopagus means Mars Hill, Mars being the Roman name of Ares. So the, the hill of Mars or Ares, okay? And so on this hill in Athens is where this group of philosophers of different schools would come together over the centuries and they would debate philosophical viewpoints and, and have philosophical debates. So much so that they actually formed a council that took on the name of the place they met, the Areopagus. And so in our passage, there's debate. Is he on the hill, the Areopagus, or is he talking to the council, the Areopagus, or both? It doesn't matter at the end of the day. He's talking to these philosophers in Athens, okay, whether or not he was actually on the hill. All right, that was an aside. Sorry for that. But, but they're interested because they always want to hear the latest ideas. If somebody came around talking about something new and innovative and interesting in their philosophical viewpoints, they wanted to hear about it because they were like the intelligentsia, all right? So they invite him, and they invite him to hear his message, even though some of them call him this really interesting word in Greek that Luke uses, it's a, it's a seed monger. It's, it's, it gives the impression of, in your Bibles it might say an, an idle babbler, but it's literally like giving the, um, the impression of like a bird that pecks around in the dirt for seeds in a barnyard. And so they call him this, and in my translation, the NASB, it, they call him a scavenger of tidbits. And what they're doing is they're belittling him because he's not one of the trained philosophers from one of their schools. And so they, he, they think he's just some guy who's pulling together all these tidbits of intellectual information and philosophical tidbits, and he's kind of cobbling together his own little philosophy. So we're going to invite him to, to hear his little philosophy, you know, but he doesn't have all this, uh, you know, reputation that we have. And that's kind of the attitude that they bring him in here. And so they call him a scavenger of tidbits. And regardless, they invite him to this famous philosophy club to explain what, what Luke says here and how they see it as strange things that he was proclaiming about Jesus and the resurrection, which they interpreted to be strange deities. Now, whether he was talking about God the Father and Jesus Christ in a Trinitarian sense, and they think he's talking about multiple gods, or they think he's actually talking about the resurrection as a goddess. There was a goddess... Uh, uh, well, the, the name Anastasia comes from the Greek for this goddess of resurrection, this resurrection goddess. So whatever the point, they're missing his point, right? And they're assuming he's talking about strange deities and strange things. And I, I need to give you a little background on Epicureans and Stoics, because this is one of those things where I had to go back and read, because I don't have this context historically. 
But the, the Epicureans and the Stoics, by this time, by the time of Paul, they'd been around for hundreds of years. They were followers of particular philosophers named Epicurus and Zeno. And they basically, it, it was these rival schools of philosophy. And the Epicureans were kind of like what you'd think of today as like a modern agnostic secularist. So someone who's kind of like indifferent about supernatural things or God, but they just kind of have a secular mindset where it's kind of focused on the, the, the palpable, you know, the physical, the nuts and bolts of life, okay? Uh, and they were materialists, so they literally believed that the universe was just a bunch of atoms, a bunch of little tiny things. So they didn't really believe in supernaturalism or, or anything like that. Um, so they were materialists. They also believed that death was the end of body and soul. That once, whatever that soul thing is that kind of animates you as a human being, that and your body go away. You just go back into a bunch of atoms, basically. So there was no afterlife. There's no nothing after you die, okay? Uh, they also believed that life was really about attaining pleasure and, and, and trying to either avoid or endure pain. So they're like, yeah, in this life, you got to go through some pain, but we can endure it and we can focus on attaining pleasure. And when you die, you die. They say no fear of the gods, no pain in death. Uh, good pleasure and endure pain, something like that. That's kind of like their motto, okay? So that's the Epicureans. Uh, and they always were about living in kind of a detached, tranquil way with, again, no concern about the gods. They would talk about the gods, but again, like an agnostic secularist today, you'd say, ah, oh, whatever, that doesn't really bother me in my day-to-day life. That's kind of their attitude. And then you got the Stoics, and the Stoics also spoke of the gods, but they were basically pantheists. In much the same way as certain Eastern religions will kind of talk about gods, like in variations of Hinduism, you'll hear talk about all these thousands and thousands of gods, but in reality, it's kind of all the same thing. It all kind of merges together in this unity, and that's kind of how the Stoics thought about the gods, is that basically all of nature and human beings included had this like divine spark in us that unites us with God in a pantheistic way, and it unites us together uh, with nature and with one another in this kind of universal brotherhood. And so that was their idea. And uh, they also believe that the way to live in accordance with that divine spark in you is to live by reason and rationality. And if you could just pursue reason as the highest goal in your life, then you can live in accordance with God, right? So they always were big on reason, big on uh, moral and ethical standards, things like that, okay? So as many differences as there were between the Epicureans and the Stoics who would sit around debating with each other, as much difference as there were, they had one thing in common, and Paul knew it, and that was that they did not know the one true God. They did not have true, accurate information about who God is, what God was like, how God was. And so when Paul sees how these Athenians are filling their lives with false worship and what he determines to be idol babbling from his perspective— he feels compelled to share the truth of the one true God. Uh, before we launched Wayside, uh, we were, I came down here, and we were in a, um, well, we came down to a church here in town, another young church plant, and I did a church planting residency. And as part of that residency, I remember I got this packet, I think Hill Country Bible Church produced it, but it's called Saturate Austin, i.e. Saturate Austin with the gospel through church planting, right? And so I remember reading through it, and one of the assignments that they had for, for future church planters was um, they literally had you walk around your neighborhood, like don't drive. I mean, I guess you could, but 
go get on your on your bike or on your feet and just walk around your neighborhood and make at least 50 observations about what you see in your neighborhood, this neighborhood that you're going to plant a church in. And I thought this was fascinating. And I've done that since then a couple times, just walking around the streets here. Um, and so they, they would uh, ask questions like, after you go on this kind of observational tour of your neighborhood, what made you angry and offended? Uh, what broke your heart? I love that question. What convicted you? What excited and encouraged you? What have you seen God doing? Where do you see the mighty hand of God at work? What is not happening in your neighborhood that maybe ought to be happening? And then it gives you these examples of things to look for, like who are the allies or the enemies in your community? Um, are there public toilets anywhere? I mean, it got really practical. It's like, do you see any public toilets anywhere? Are, are, uh, are the yards, how do they look? Are they fenced? Are they manicured? Um, are there vacant lots? What decorations do you see on people's houses? What celebrations are they celebrating or holidays? What possessions seem most important to the people in your neighborhood? What kind of cars are they driving? Are there parks? Are there grocery stores? Are there ethnic foods and restaurants and stores? What political issues are reflected on yard signs and bumper stickers? Where are the third places where people go to gather? And what tends to bring people together in your neighborhood, in your community? And guys, we hardly ever think about where we live and work and walk and eat in those, in those ways. And the whole point of the assignment was to see the neighborhood ultimately as God sees it. And I don't mean the neighborhood like the parks and the benches and the public toilets. I mean the people in your neighborhood. The whole point is to see them as God sees them, to see the hurts of these people, the beauty of these people, the potential of your neighborhood as a harvest field for God's kingdom. And that's exactly what Paul was doing in Athens while he was there. He was walking around looking at the art and the architecture, and he was being filled with righteous anger as he perceived the pervasiveness of pagan worship in the lives of the Athenian people. And it prompted him to action. And I want to challenge each and every one of us to do exactly what I just described to you, to walk around your neighborhood, walk around the streets you live on, Walk around the parks. Walk around your kid's school. Walk around the grocery store or the shopping center. Walk around your workplace, your office, and ask yourself those questions. What are the false gods in our culture? That's another thing I had to do is I had to walk around Great Hills and and answer the question, if these people don't know the one true God, what are they filling their lives with or attempting to fill their lives with? And there's all sorts of false gods right here in Great Hills academics, the achievement of our children, athletics, jobs, the titles under our names on business cards, whatever those things are. Nobody uses those anymore. Whatever the title is under our name on our email signature, you know, these are all false gods that we can worship. And these could be troubling things like alcohol and drug abuse or sexual sin, obvious things like gang violence or something. But folks, false gods can be good things too when we take those good things and put them in the place of God. It could be a marriage or a desire to be married. It could be kids. It could be family life. It could be vacations. It could be activities, athletics, academic performance, recreation, hobbies, entertainment, career, financial success, and on and on. And when we see how these false gods distract people from the one true God and lead us away to destruction, 
Because guys, if we don't have a reconciled relationship with our creator, and if we can't be with him, the very source of life himself, who is the author and perfecter of life for the rest of eternity, then the only other option of being away from him for all eternity is nothing short of destruction. And when we see false gods luring people away from the one true God, their creator, then we should have that same sense of righteous anger. Do we feel that? Do we feel a deep desire for people to know God as they ought to and to worship him with their lives? Are we infuriated at how false worship has distracted or diminished our own relationship with God? Guys, look at your own life first. I have to do this too. Are false gods, false worship leading us astray, diminishing how we are responding to God, how we are related to God and worshiping him? The only cure for false worship is God's truth. We, we have to prepare ourselves by filling our hearts and minds with God's word. I know you wake up some mornings and go, I don't want to read my Bible, or I don't even know what page to turn to, or whatever else. I mean, we would look at physical exercise and think, you know, or eating vegetables or whatever, and go, I know I don't always want to do that, but I know those things are good for me. And guys, filling your hearts and minds with God's word is good for us. It's the thing that's going to nourish us. It's the thing that's going to prepare our hearts and minds to engage people with the gospel. And then we can have spiritual conversations with others who are distracted by idols and desperate for a reconciled relationship with their creator, whether they know it or not. And that leads us to the second point of our passage. Our Christian message is that God is knowable. He didn't just make the clock, wind it up, and step away. He's not the God of Thomas Jefferson and deism, okay? He's a personal God who not only created us, but created us for the purpose, the express intent for us to know him and respond to him in worship. So he is knowable, and that's the message of Christianity. That's the message of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And specifically, we can know God through a relationship with his son, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, anyone can know God. Uh, uh, Please walk away from here knowing this. Anybody, I don't care what their background is, what they've done, what they haven't done, what they look like, what they, whatever. Anyone can know God. But folks, not everyone will know God. So let's look at that. Everyone can know God. This is Paul's main idea in his evangelistic speech. So I'm going to walk through his speech point by point, and we're going to look at what he's trying to communicate to these unbelieving pagan Athenians, okay? And what you're going to find as I go through these points is that, guys, these are the same conversations we're having with our agnostic neighbors and friends. This is how we're presenting God to people that don't, have never read the Bible, who don't even know what the Bible is, and have never heard of Jesus, all right? So listen to what he says. Paul's first point in verses 22 and 23 is that humans need the revelation of God to have a relationship with God. Guys, that's why he's in Athens, because we did not get it right on our own. We didn't kind of grope around in the darkness and take hold of the truth of God. And so that's why God sends. That's the whole point of the book of Acts is that he sends us as his witnesses. He gives truth to his apostles, and then they teach that truth to others who teach others who teach others who proclaim the gospel throughout the centuries to the ends of the earth. And so we as humans need that revelation from God to have a relationship with God. And even very religious people, do you see what he says here? Even people that are highly spiritual or religious can totally miss the one true God. Religiosity is not, is not a guarantee that you will know God as you ought to. 
So he says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. Probably a little double meaning there. Uh, They probably took it to mean positive. He says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, ignorance was the cardinal sin to Athenian philosophers. That's the worst thing you could be is ignorant. And he says, what you worship in ignorance, i.e., there's a God that says to an unknown God. And they're like, well, maybe we missed one. Well, let's just make an idol and just say to the unknown God, sorry, don't curse us. We're going to make sacrifices to you too. And he's like, who? And he uses that as his entry to say, who you worship in ignorance, I will now proclaim to you. So we need that revelation. All right, Paul's second point in verses 24 and 25 is that God is our creator and sustainer. Where did all this come from? God created it. He was there in the beginning. He created everything that ever was. All right? He's the only uncreated being. And he sustains all life. He didn't need to make us. And I've had this conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses on my front doorstep and and, uh, Muslim people as well. But they believe in a God, uh, the, the, what is it? He- well, I forget. Heavenly Father, is that what they, in the JWs? Is that what they call him? Anyway, their God and the God of, of, of Islam, Allah, they're both singular unities. They're not tri-unities. They're not Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So they, they exist by themselves in pre-eternal existence. So there's no worship. There's no love. There's no relationship. Nothing. They have to create something to have a relationship with something, for something to worship them, for, for, that, for something to in, enjoy them, okay? That is not the God of Christianity. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who has eternally existed in perfect, harmonious community for all of pre-eternity, all of eternity past. And he created us not out of need. Oh, I need something to reflect my glory. I need something to worship me. I need something to make sacrifices to me. He made us because he wanted to make us. Because he wanted to make creatures that could bear his image and, 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 and see his glory and enjoy him forever in relationship. It was an act of love that he created us. And this is what Paul's saying. He doesn't need our temples and our sacrifices and offerings. He chose to create us and to create the world for us. He created this vast universe not for himself to run around in, like he needed some park to play in. He created it for us to enjoy and for us to see his majesty on display, his wisdom, his grandeur, his grace. The God who made the world, Paul says, and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And Paul's third point in verses 26 and 27 is that God is sovereign over human history. He stands behind and above all of human history. And yet he stands nearby each and every human being who's ever existed. Isn't that beautiful? He chose to create for the purpose of relationship, to know and worship him. Paul says, and he made from one man, he's referring to Adam, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times or seasons and the boundaries of their habitation, that, well, what's the purpose? That they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Guys, 
every single human, the God of human history has stood close by them. Everyone can know God. Paul's fourth point in verses 28 and 29 is that God is the source of our existence and he alone deserves our worship. He, listen to the irony here. He makes us in his image to reflect his glory. And instead of, of worshiping him, our creator, we give glory to inanimate man-made idols and objects that we've fashioned for ourselves out of his created materials. Isn't that ironic? That we use the created materials of the creator to worship those things into little gods that we fashion for ourselves. And that's Paul's point here. He says, for in him we live and move and exist. We owe our existence to him. As even some of your own poets, he quotes one of of the Greek poets. For we also are his descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God or the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. In other words, guys, if we are the highest echelon of creation the human being, and if we are personal and relational, why on on earth wouldn't we think God is also personal and relational? If we value love and these things like justice and, and we cry out for justice and righteousness and honesty and integrity and all these things, why would we not think that God is that to the infinite degree? And that's his point. Why would we fashion some God in our image and give it our worship instead of thinking that God is is like us in a sense, but only to an infinite degree as a personal, loving, gracious being. Paul's final point in verses 30 uh, to 31 is that humans can have a relationship with God by repenting and trusting in Christ. And, and so he mentions bodily resurrection. His speech gets cut off, by the way. This happens a lot with Paul, particularly when he talks about bodily resurrection. That's usually where people like start scoffing or causing a, a ruckus, Okay. So when he mentions bodily resurrection, that was not a category in Greek philosophical thought. That your body, the thing that dies, is going to come back to life and be reanimated. Not only that, but resurrected and glorified, never to fall ill again, never to die again. That was not in Greek philosophical categories, okay? But Paul makes it clear even though he's interrupted, that God has revealed his purpose in the person and work of Jesus Christ, whom he appointed as both savior and judge of mankind, and then provided proof to all of humanity through the resurrection. That's what the resurrection is. Well, of many things that it is, it is proof that God has appointed Jesus Christ to be both judge and savior. And you're going to be on one end of that coin or the other. He's either going to come as judge to judge your sin or your sin was judged on him at the cross and he's going to come as savior to save you from judgment. Okay? And that's what he's saying here. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. That means turn from your unbelief because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. So every person can know God by turning from unbelief and trusting in Christ, but not everyone will know God And as was always the case with Paul, Paul's evangelism had a mixed response. By the way, ours does too. So what do we see here in our last two verses? Basically three responses. There's total rejection. There's limited reception of what he was saying, kind of a curiosity. And then there's full acceptance. In verse 32, Paul's message is totally rejected by some who are scoffing. 
especially after he mentions bodily resurrection. And that would have been a hard pill to swallow for these philosophers. Like I said, they didn't have categories for that. So they're hearing something new going, ah, that, no, we're going to scoff at that. But some of the intellectuals were interested in what Paul was saying. They wanted to hear more. We see this in the synagogues as well. And these were what we might call soft agnostics who seemed to be open-minded towards Paul's message about Jesus Christ and the one true God. And then finally, some of the Athenians believed Paul's message about God and Jesus, and they joined the apostle while he remained there. And it doesn't tell us that a church was started there, but these believers would have eventually been organized into a church. And even a member of this philosophy council believes in Jesus. Uh, One of the Areopagites, it tells us, uh, believes in Jesus and begins a reconciled relationship with his creator. So Paul's message was that God is knowable, And he wants everyone everywhere to know God by turning from idols and trusting in Jesus. And that's why our Wayside mission, our statement, if you go on the website, our mission statement is literally to help every man, woman, and child in greater Austin know God, find the way to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We want every man, woman, and child in greater Austin to know God in that sense through Christ. Again, the way. We want our people to have lots of spiritual conversations. Guys, we want you to have lots of spiritual conversations with people, all right? Prayerfully, humbly, and earnestly have spiritual conversations with all sorts of people so that they might hear the gospel and become followers of Jesus themselves. And our message should sound like Paul's message, that God is knowable and that he has fully revealed himself in Christ. But as we share that message, we have to remember that even though everyone can know God, it's as simple as trusting in Christ. Everyone can, but not everyone will know God. There will always be a mixed response. Those who will reject Jesus and never truly know God and never have that atoning sacrifice for their sin. There are people that will be curious and might come to know God someday. They'll they'll at least ask some good questions, hopefully, and engage in a spiritual conversation And then there's those who will receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and will know God, adopted into his family as as their heavenly father. So, who do you know that might be interested in hearing more about how to have a relationship with God? Just think about your life. Look around, look at how people are, are engaged in false worship, trying to fill their life with these things, jobs and kids and money and whatever, right? Pleasure, uh... Who needs to know God? Where are they in their spiritual journey? And how might you help them take whatever that next step is in their spiritual journey? Maybe they're hardened atheists, and it's just the recognition that God might exist. They move off of a hard atheism to kind of agnosticism. Maybe it's to move from agnosticism to deism. Yeah, God's there, but maybe he's not personal. Maybe it's to to move from that to theism, that that we do have a personal God. Maybe eventually it's to move from that uh, this was how it worked in C.S. Lewis's life to move from atheism to theism to Christianity. So at what stage in that process can we come alongside people and help them know the truth and to have a relationship with God? Um, so I'm going to leave you with Paul's words from Romans 10, 10 and I'm, I'm done. Romans 10, 14 and 15, Paul writes this. He says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And then he says this from the Hebrew Scriptures, As as it is written, how beautiful are the feet 
of those who bring good news. So Waysiders, consider yourselves sent to preach that good news, that God is noble and that anyone can have a reconciled relationship with their creator through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. That's our message and that's our mission. Next week, uh, Paul is going to leave Athens after just a short stint and he's going to go to Corinth, uh, Corinth and he's going to proclaim Jesus to the Corinthians and he's going to be there a year and a half. Um, and we're going to cover a big chunk of that next time.